Anatomy of a Conversation. Okay, as I mentioned, the first time I read Chapter 6, I was not sure what to make of it. Having now read it again, carefully, out loud, and mapped the conversation, I think I know. Silas has been living a hermit's existence, entirely cut off from his community. An accusation of theft against him had alienated him from society. Now, the theft of his own property drives him back. In this chapter, Eliot gives real, pulsating life to the distinct personalities and everyday exchanges of these men and their small-town existence. They are quirky and quarrelsome, superstitious and simple-minded, and all the while charming and lovable, each in their own way. In my summer travels to the Cotswolds, I have walked into many a village pub and seen the local regulars. How amazing it would be to see the abstracted essence of their identities and their conversations in some kind of scrolling feed over their heads. They must know each other's stories. They must have recurrent disputes. They must have identifiable natures. But we'd have to live among them a long time to know what those are. Elliot gives us all of it at a glimpse. Let me summarize a little of what we observe. But first, as I mentioned in the focus summary, I want to tell you that I've created a spreadsheet of this dialogue with each new line in descending cells that fall under the column of the character speaking. If you want to review the conversation with this, I think very helpful format, follow the link in the Facebook group or the email. A word of warning, it doesn't seem to work properly on mobile devices. Back to our friends at the Rainbow. What sorts of things do we learn about them? We learn they have arguments that are unarguably trivial, but also totally innocuous. Not content to let go unchallenged another man's glory over the fine beast he drove in, the farrier feels a sense of triumph when he can identify the exact cow about which the butcher boasts. What is missing, if you read only the dialogue and not the description of this silly competition, are the hilarious subtleties of pacing and posture in each man's stratagem. When, for example, the butcher is cornered into admitting that the farrier does know the very cow, after he bets a penny that she has a star upon her head, the butcher answers, Well, yes, she might. And, we are told, he does so slowly considering that he was giving a decided affirmative. If he has to concede the point, he can at least do so on his own schedule. The landlord, introduced to us as a man of neutral disposition, accustomed to stand aloof from human differences as those beings who are all alike in need of liquor, is the self-appointed mediator. However contradictory the two sides of an argument, he will always insist that they are both right. He tells the butcher and the farrier, Come, come, let the cow alone. The truth lies atween you. Which is all the more hilarious, given that I'm not sure there was ever any fact in dispute. We see the resident storyteller and community elder Mr. Macy called upon to tell them all his familiar tales. At first, he is mockingly dismissive, telling the landlord to let the young folks, with their fancy pronouncing, to do the talking. This leads to an exchange of teasing witticisms at the expense of Mr. Tukey, the deputy clerk, who, we are told, shared the unpopularity common to deputies. 
Their jibes about his singing reach a crescendo when Tukey claims they are just trying to force him out of the choir to deny him his share of the Christmas money, and Ben Winthrop assures him they would pay him not to sing. To defuse the situation, in comes the landlord, saying, "'You're both right, and you're both wrong, as I say. I agree with Mr. Macy here. Tukey's right, and Winthrop's right.' In that moment, it's almost as if the landlord managed to see three sides in a two-sided argument. He then tries to return the conversation to the safe ground of Mr. Macy's old stories. The story of how the Lameters came to Ravelow from Northard, but not too far Northard, since he brought a fine breed of sheep with him, so everything there must be reasonable. The story of how when the old rector Mr. Drumlow married Mr. Lameter to Miss Osgood, he put the questions by rule of contrary, asking her to take him as her wife and him to take her as his husband. This story, with Macy's hair-pulling confusion over whether to say anything for fear the marriage would be void, is absolutely hysterical and worth rereading if you missed any part of it the first time. It was another of my laugh-out-loud moments when he reached the considered conclusion the parson meant right and the bride and bridegroom meant right. But then, when I come to think on it, meanin' goes but a little way in most things, for you may mean to stick things together, and your glue may be bad, and then where are you? Next time someone tells me they didn't mean to do something, I'm definitely going to come back with, you may mean to stick things together, and your glue may be bad, and then where are you? I don't care if it doesn't make sense to them, or, when it comes down to it, if it makes sense at all. Mr. Macy's companions could probably recite this story from heart, and yet we are warmed to this community by Eliot's charming account of how they receive it. Quote, Every one of Mr. Macy's audience had heard this story many times, but it was listened to as if it had been a favorite tune, and at certain points the puffing of the pipes was momentarily suspended, that the listeners might give their whole minds to the expected words." Unquote. I have to tell you as a personal aside that this same story has been told in my family year after year, because when my mom married my stepfather, the judge had been stung by a bee and was a bit doped up on Benadryl, so he asked my mom whether she would take my stepfather as her lawfully wedded wife. Finally, there was Mr. Macy's story about Cliff's Holiday, where in the dead of night you can see the lights burning and hear the whip cracking, and the ensuing dares and debate. For Mr. Macy, the good word of his father is proof enough. The skeptical farrier is willing to wager ten pounds that if he stands there all night he will neither see lights nor hear noises. Ben Winthrop accuses him of making a bet he knows no one will take, since it wouldn't be worth ten pounds to venture near the place. And, the butcher adds, if he goes alone, no one will take his word. But we can count on our peacemaking landlord to spin this such that they are all right. Just like his wife, who can't smell, wouldn't know if she had the strongest cheese under her nose, there are those who can't see ghosts, even if they are plainly before their eyes. So, he'd believe the farrier if he said he didn't see a thing, and he'd believe anyone who said he did. He sums this brilliant analogical argument up by saying, The smell's what I go by.
Maybe you didn't need me to recount the spirit of this conversation for you in this level of detail. But the first time I read it, I needed me to. So I'm just going to guess that I was not alone. We now know these fellows. Know them well. Mr. Macy's lore, Mr. Tukey's unpopularity, the farrier's posturing as the knowing and sensible one, and the landlord's compulsion to conciliate. In fact, an annotated copy of the novel that I recently discovered comments here, quote, It is perhaps safe to say that no more truthful reproduction of provincial English conversation can be found in literature than that which is so skillfully presented in this famous chapter. Unquote. The question then is, why do we know them? Clearly, more answers may come but I think at least a hint of the reason is given in what is one of my favorite lines in the novel so far. When Silas tells these men his story and endures their intent questioning, he begins to undergo a change. Quote, This strangely novel situation of opening his trouble to his Ravelo neighbors, of sitting in the warmth of a hearth not his own, and feeling the presence of faces and voices which were his nearest promise of help, had doubtless its influence on Marner, in spite of his passionate preoccupation with his loss. Our consciousness rarely registers the beginning of a growth within us any more than without us. There have been many circulations of the sap before we detect the smallest sign of the bud. Unquote. For all their quirks, they are a community, something Silas sorely lacks. <laughs> 